Good morning. I'm Sonia Thompson, and our reading this morning is from Matthew 5. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Dean Miller was with us the past couple of weeks and uh, got us into the Beatitudes. We're going to look a little bit at the Beatitudes this morning. Um, and as we reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, it's something that's common to many people who have grown up in the church. If you've been in churches for a while, you've heard of it. Um, it's one of the most famous sermons of all time that Jesus preached. Um, and it gives a lot on things like prayer and what to do with your money and how to approach sexuality and how to approach um, love and hate with other people. But, but the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about how to become a better person. As one, as one commentator put it, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus revealing that it is time to implement God's reign. God's reign has begun in me, Jesus, and you as my people, as my followers, are to bring about the implementation of God's reign. In other words, what Jesus says time and again is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is breaking in, in me, and you as his disciples. So through us, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And so in the passage that we get today, Jesus saying, you are the salt, the light, the city on a hill. It's not just a command of like, hey, be a better moral person, live this out. It is actually a description of what God is doing and inviting us into. To be about his kingdom shaping implementation or his kingdom shaping purposes in this world and to live it out as God's chosen instrument in this world. And so in verse 13 and 14, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, listening, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And he's talking to his disciples. And so on just the very basic level, right? On the very basic level, light, when you turn on a light switch, it gets rid of the darkness. You're in a dark room, you turn on the light switch, the light comes in, it's not dark there anymore. In the middle of the night, it can feel really dark if there's no light around if you're out in the woods, but the sun rises, pushes out the darkness. In a biblical sense, from the Old Testament through to the New, and especially in the Gospel of John, light has theological implications. Light is God's presence, God's hope, God's truth. And in that sense, when Jesus talks about light, it's not just pushing out darkness, it's pushing out spiritual darkness. It's the calling is to be those who are pushing out evil in this world through our presence. 
And then he talks about salt. You are the salt of the earth. And of course, salt is used for seasoning. It was back then, is today. But in the ancient world, and actually not too many years ago, 200 years ago, salt was the primary way to preserve food. So you would take meat, which would decay after a few days without refrigeration, and you would just rub salt all over it, and then take chunks of meat, you would take smaller strips or chunks, rub salt all over it, and then put it in a jar that was filled with more salt. So this is like the saltiest beef jerky ever, but it would last months. It wouldn't decay. It would not be sick, make you sick, it would not kill you, as meat would if you just left it out and started eating it when it had rotted. So that preserving is one of the things that I think Jesus is really pushing into there. The other one to remember is this, is that salt and light both exist in this metaphor, both exist for something else. They both find their purpose, they live out their purpose in contact with or in the presence of something else. They achieve something beyond themselves. So light is how we see our way in the darkness, so you don't trip. Light also reveals things, so you think, oh, that's beautiful. You don't see the painting, you don't, you don't see the, uh, the landscape, you don't see a little baby without light. And so you can appreciate beauty, the joy of life, and also avoid danger. Its purpose is to benefit something else. Salt, of course, is similar. It's useless if it's just by itself. When Jesus is talking about if salt loses its saltiness, which was sort of an, a thing that couldn't happen, he's meaning if the salt is not being used for its purpose, if it's not on the meat, what good is it? Salt and light exist for something else. And in the way that Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about the difference between the kingdom values, the kingdom purposes, the kingdom culture, and the culture, purposes, and values of everyone outside of God's kingdom, the world, as Jesus often talks about or the Bible talks about it. And what he's saying is, as my disciples, you are to be different and distinct from the culture around you, and yet involved and affecting the culture around you. We get this more clearly when he talks about a city set on a hill. He says, uh, the second half of verse 14, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the ancient world, the city was the place for survival. We have, for years, in places like America, thought of cities as dangerous places or exciting places. You go there when you're a, a young man or woman to escape all the, the doldrums and the boredom and the, the laziness of your suburbs or rural areas, and it's the dangerous place. But in the ancient world, a city was the most safe place. To be out in the wilderness, to be out in the rural areas, was to be subject to danger. City was a place of hospitality in a world where you didn't have grocery stores or convenience marts. There wasn't a 7-Eleven every couple of miles. That was where you could get food, drink, protection, shelter. It was a place of hospitality. And it was also the place of justice. Outside of cities, the rule of law was just the powerful preyed on the weak. And if you were in a rural area and maybe accidentally injured or harmed somebody else, they could get vengeance on you by just overpowering and killing you. But if you fled to a city, you were guaranteed to get justice. Rule of law existed in cities. 
So even in the Old Testament, they set up uh, cities of refuge so that if, if you had done something wrong, you could go there and be guaranteed that regardless of clan-based uh, angers and historical kind of fighting, you would have safety in a city of refuge and be guaranteed to have a court of law that was based on some version of rule of law and order. And so the city was a place of hospitality, of safety, of justice. And then, of course, the imagery of cities set on a hill, we have to think about this. We, I, I, most of us have lived in places our whole life that have some amount of light pollution. So wherever we, I've lived, I've lived in places where I don't need uh, the lights. I don't need a flashlight to walk down my street. There's lights everywhere. And even if half of them are out, it's still pretty light. Until like all the power goes out in the city, you have a pretty good amount of light. And even then you have cars going by all the time. But in the ancient world, it was a dark world. There was no electricity, a couple of candles, lamps, very small amount of light is what you would have. But a city was a collection of homes lit up by lamps, which in that ancient world would have been the brightest thing for miles and miles around. And so the imagery that Jesus is hitting on is something that would have been common to that person in that day and age. Whether you're a traveler returning from afar, or you're a shepherd who's been out in the, in the fields for weeks, you're in utter and total darkness. And maybe you've been wandering at night trying to get back home, trying to get to where safety is, and eventually turn the corner in the midst of a dark, dark night, and there's a city set on a hill, your city. It's a place that you know where you're going. You can see it from miles away. For somebody who was an immigrant, a refugee, it maybe is their only hope of survival. Is that they enter the city and the ancient rules of hospitality and of justice would protect them. And so they could see miles away in that ancient world, a lit city and they head that way. It was a place of safety and hospitality and of hope. And Jesus is saying, that's your call. As individuals, as households, as a church. To be a place of safety and hospitality and hope. And so as we think about this today, I want us to think as a church, collectively, as a church, how are we being called to be salt, light, and a city on a hill? In Matthew 5 through 7, which is the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, of course, and I just mentioned this, calls the disciples to be a counterculture to the culture around them. A culture within the culture, a kingdom culture in a wider culture that has other values that are both good and bad. And so, as you see in the Sermon on the Mount, to follow and live into God's kingdom purposes means that the values, the aims, the purposes of, of God's people are going to be different than people around them. If you look through the Sermon on the Mount, it, the implications for us are what we do with our money, with success, with sex, is going to be different than the non-religious world. And what we do with prayer, how we approach enemies, how we define what is good is going to be different than the religious and moralistic people. Jesus pushes on both sides in the Sermon on the Mount. He invites us to redefine good, our purposes, our calling, on the basis of him and not anything else. Salt and light, salt and light. 
they are distinct from the thing they're affecting, but they're deeply involved in the thing they're affecting. We're called to be distinct from not assimilating into the culture around us, and yet deeply involved in working for the well-being of the culture around us. Seeking the social and political and economic and physical and spiritual and relational well-being of everyone. And so it does mean that as Christians, there's going to be times when we mourn things, as Jesus talked about mourn. We can mourn sin in a culture, brokenness in a culture. We can mourn a culture without God, people that we know whose lives are breaking down. But we also should, should not be people marked by anger or defensiveness or fearfulness in the midst of any culture that is without God. And we should be the sort of people that desire God's purposes more than our own well-being. So hear that again, that we should desire God's purposes for the country we live in, the town we live in, the schools our kids go to, God's purposes for them more than our own protection, safety, and well-being. And that means a willingness to surrender power and not demand our rights. In commenting on this passage, Pastor Tim Keller talked about Jesus' description of loving our neighbor, being salt and light, working for the common good of the culture around us. And he says, of necessity, Christians are going to be doing cultural renewal if we are the salt and the light. We're gonna be renewing the culture around us. But he goes on to say, the simple fact is that cultural change is always a byproduct of being faithful, not the main goal. The main goal is always loving and serving. If we love and serve our neighbors, our city, and the Lord, it will definitely mean social changes, but Christians must not seek to take over and control society as an end in itself. If we truly seek to serve, we will be gladly given a certain measure of influence by those around us. But if we seek power directly just to get power and make the world more like us, we will probably neither have influence nor be of service. Everyone around us will view us with alarm as well they should. A Christian counterculture should be attracted to and attractive to those who most disagree with us. If I'm holding kingdom values, then I should be attracted to and attractive to those who most disagree with what I believe. And that's my hope for this church. My hope for this church is that skeptics and doubters and people struggling in sin or whose life is just kind of falling apart would feel like this is a place of safety and of hope. That we would be a place where across political divisions and a culture that is increasingly divided by politics, across even cultural and ethnic diversity, across socioeconomic difference, that it would be a place where we could see each other as brothers and sisters and recognize that it's okay to disagree. And yet, how do we live that out well? One of the things I've been talking about for a couple of years, because I feel like the Holy Spirit keeps pressing it on me, is that I think that we need to be marked by something that our culture is not marked by, or many people are not, which is humility and generosity. 
I think the gospel, when it digs deep into our heart, should make us more humble and more generous. And when I say generosity, I don't just mean money. I mean generosity of spirit. That we're not demanding our rights. We're working for the good of other people in whatever way that is. Absolutely full of humility and generosity. And we need to do that with each other too. My guess is if we walk through every single issue, you guys would disagree with me. Individuals of you would disagree with me on certain things. Can we live into one church community that has disagreements on a number of issues and hold it with humility and generosity with each other and model kingdom living and be a place of hospitality and safety and hope pointing towards Christ and Christ alone. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. If we are living out God's kingdom purposes for us as individuals, as families, as a church, many people will experience God possibly for the first time through us. Maybe even believe in God. But of course, if what Jesus says is truth, then many people are still going to reject us. In verse 10, 11, and 12, he talks about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, that others will revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And of course, you know, if you've lived in this country for 30, 40, 60 years, you recognize that it is increasingly a post-Christian culture we live in. And in fact, you'll even find hostility to Christianity in a way that maybe didn't exist 30 years ago, 50 years ago. But I want us to be careful when we hear the word Jesus saying you'll be persecuted to be very cautious about how we use that term. You know, most uh, kind of people who do sociology, anthropology of Christian persecution, when they label it, they actually break it down into four categories. That uh, a church or Christians in a society, in a culture, can be in a position of being privileged and in power. They can be preferred, permitted, or persecuted. In America, we are not persecuted not on their definition of it. Where it's illegal and you're gonna face death. It's probably true that Christianity has moved from being privileged down a rung or two, but there's a very different thing than being persecuted. And yet, and yet, where's the gospel growing? Do you know that there are over 70 distinct movements of the gospel, meaning a thousand or more people have come to faith and been baptized in a given kind of time frame, in a given location, over 70 different distinct movements of the gospel in Muslim worlds, where it is dangerous, actual persecution, and yet it's growing. It's the fastest growing religion in Iran is Christianity. So now and in the future, you and I may deal with more and more unfair labels. We'll probably lose friends. Some of you may even lose your job because of your faith. And I, it's not just me being pessimistic to think that churches will probably shrink as it becomes harder to be a Christian. But the persecuted church historically is any indication 
discipleship will deepen. Authenticity of faith will grow. And there's an opportunity to trust and experience God in far deeper ways now than there was 30 or 50 years ago. We're being pushed into it. I also want us to be cautious when we use the word persecuted to recognize the caveat that Jesus gives, right? In verse 10, he says, if you're persecuted for righteousness, or if people revile you or utter all kinds of evil on my account. Okay, so that word righteousness, that word righteousness, um, one Old Testament scholar defines biblical righteousness this way. The righteous in the Old Testament are those who disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community. The unrighteous are those who advantage themselves at the expense of the community. Or to put it another way, righteousness and justice are almost co-equal terms throughout scripture. And justice has to do with using all of your resources, your strengths, your influence, your status, your education, your gifting for the sake of others, and especially the weak and the vulnerable. Jesus did not exploit his divinity for his own good in Philippians 2, it says, but he gave it up for the sake of others. That's what justice is. So if we're being persecuted, is it for righteousness and justice? Or as Jesus says, on my account, on account of Jesus' name. So there are many reasons, many reasons why people might dislike you. And most of them have to do with personality flaws and not Jesus. We get rejected because we are controlling or critical or mean or overbearing. In other words, we probably cannot claim that we're being persecuted for righteousness just because we're tactless. or a little overbearing or self-righteous and judgy. So make sure that it's Jesus and justice and not just things we need to work on in our character. But if we do follow Christ, Jesus' claim is we will not be popular. And most likely, if you're truly following Christ, you will be hurt by people. People who will reject you. And if not, then I think Jesus' calling is, or question is, do you really believe in me? And do your beliefs in your life match me? Are the things that you hold to be true submitted to Christ's lordship? Are you being formed more and more into the image of Christ? Is that how you define everything from your pocketbook and your politics to your approach to relationships? Because if it is, it will be on the outs at some point. So it's either if we're not being persecuted or dealing with rejection, it's because we don't necessarily believe and live out the fullness of Christ's Lordship. Or it's because we're cowards and we want to be liked and we don't want people to know the things about us that we believe that differ from them. Our purpose, our calling, and it's not just a do this, our purpose, our calling is to be salt, light, a city on a hill. And if we as individuals and as a church are truly that kingdom city on a hill, many will reject. Many will reject Christ. Many will reject Christianity. 
And some people will even reject you and me. But some will come seeking community, healing, hope. They will see the church and his people as the light that they are longing for. You know, one of the things I wanted us to do this summer as we were approaching uh, coming out of COVID, I thought about it a couple months ago, is to spend time reflecting on what God has taught us individually over the past year and a half through all the challenges, but ultimately to get to a point of understanding where is God calling me now in this next season of life? I think one of my tendencies is to want to just go back to normal. I'm so excited to be back inside Madison High School next week because it's going to feel normal. I have been so glad to go to restaurants and hang out with friends and feel normal, right? But I don't want us to settle for going back. Just going back to 18 months ago. Use this break and as we're coming out of it as an opportunity to say, God, now that I'm in this season of my life, I've gone from having no kids to having little kids five years ago. Little kids to older kids, empty nest. I'm now in my 40s, I'm now in my 60s, I'm now in my 80s. I'm now in my teens. What is God calling you to distinctly over the next five years? He has made you, gifted you, called you distinctly. Each one of us as an individual, called to be the salt in certain meat, called to be the light in certain darkness. And he's called us as a church to the same sort of thing. How is God calling you, your family, this church, to be salt and light? And one of the things I see God doing, moving in this church, and I think he's going to continue doing it, we saw it before, and I think it's pushing ahead, is that we are to be a city on a hill for high school students and to renew that. We've seen that in years past, and I think as we re-enter Madison, there's a unique opportunity to do that, to be a city on a hill for kids in their 12, 13, 16, 20 age range. Another is the work that we've been seeing through Jorge and through Josefa this summer, through Rod, and work with, um, with mostly Latino immigrants, but there's a brotherhood, a sisterhood that we are being invited into, some unique opportunities there that I think this church is gifted and called into. I also personally feel called to push our church beyond just looking like me. So that maybe we would be a church that reflects the ethnic diversities of Northern Virginia a little bit more. I'm not sure how God wants to do that. We see it in some ways possible. How else is God inviting us to be his city on a hill in Vienna and in Northern Virginia, in DC? Can you can we, can this church, be a place of hospitality and hope for the wider community? And to do so in such a way that the surrounding culture doesn't want our countercultural community to leave. That's the goal, <laughs> in some ways. To get to a place where they say, if we have to leave Vienna, they would say, no, 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 don't leave. We think you're wrong, but we want you here. To represent Christ in every possible way. Let us pray. God, I pray for anyone in this space right now who, even as we've been reflecting on being salt, light in a city on a hill, who just feel guilty. Take away that false thought and give them the hope that you are inviting them and us into a hopeful and active life, life to the full, fulfilling our purpose 
with our family and neighbors, friends at school, the wider community. And in the coming year and years, enable us individually and as a church to be the city on a hill you are calling us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.